part of the idea of believing that what happens to other black people affects you and recognizing that you're not just an individual, but that politically because of the social marker of race and the social stigma of race, that your identity is salient um, and that it makes sense for people to join together to try to collectively improve their community and their group status within the community. That also creates opportunities for healing because you don't have to suffer this alone. Other people saw the exact same thing that you do, that you did. And if you talk about it, right, that there, that's a way to help work through some mm. of that trauma together. Welcome to the first episode of the Addy Hour. I'm really excited to get this program off the ground and really thrilled to introduce you to some great guests as we talk through some really important and some really deep content at times. So just before we jump into this first episode, I do want to set the stage just a little bit and to say that one of the things that I'm really trying to do on this podcast is to pair unique individuals from really different walks of life who can come and share on the same topic and share from their unique perspectives, from their professional expertise and from their lived experience. So I think there's going to be a lot of great content that we're going to be able to talk through together. And I'm happy to be able to bring that to you through this series. Um, and with that, I'm really excited to welcome the first two guests on the program. Dr. Jeff Gardier and Dr. Andre Gillespie. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And these are names that you definitely should know. If you don't, you'll definitely know them well after our conversation today. But by way of brief introduction, did want to introduce both of them to you before we jump into the conversation. Um, so we'll start with Dr. Jeff Gardier. He's also known as America's psychologist. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist who has a private practice in Manhattan. Um, and he's also an associate professor at the Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York City. Um, Dr. Jeff has a very impressive background. Uh, he's a very prolific author. He's also contributed to documentaries as a producer as well. Um, he's also been a, a appeared on multiple national uh, news outlets. He's been on the Fox Network, on Today Show, also on MSNBC and on CNN. And in his own words, he has appeared on Ratchet TV on occasion as well. So I did want to mention that. Um, but he's also a really devoted family man. He's a father of six. He has lots of great hobbies. He really enjoys volunteering, enjoys giving back to the community, also enjoys daily exercise, and is very disciplined about that, um, and enjoys attending religious services. So we're honored to have Dr. Jeff on the program. I should also mention he's an interfaith ordained minister, so several different aspects that definitely tie into what we want to bring out today. So thanks for being here, Dr. Jeff. It's a pleasure. Wow, what an introduction. I didn't even know half those things about myself. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be reminded. Good to be reminded. Um, also, a pleasure to welcome Dr. Andre Gillespie to the program. Andre is an associate professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnston Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. And I definitely had to read that because I don't think I would have remembered all of those words. It's a very impressive um, position that she has there. Uh, she did her PhD training at Yale University, so there is a little bit of an overlap there. We did overlap at Yale in our grad training, um, and it's great to be able to reconnect with her in this way. Um, at Emory, she teaches a host of different classes on American politics, race and politics, and also on aspects of qualitative methodology. In terms of her research, she focuses on political leadership of the post-civil rights generation, and she also does work looking specifically at African-American politicians and political leadership that transcends race and how black voters respond to those individuals. Um, so a lot of the topics that she emphasizes and studies on are really relevant to the topics we'll be discussing today. She's also an accomplished author with numerous books. Um, she's an active public scholar, also has written op-eds and done interviews 
on numerous local and uh, national and international media outlets. So we're great, very grateful to have Dr. Andre Gillespie on the program today as well. Thank you. So with that, before we get into some of the, the nitty gritty, I just want to ask at the very baseline how both of you all are doing in the midst of everything that's happening in our world today, everything that's happening in your personal lives. So Andre, why don't we start with you? How, how, are, you, how are you managing these days with everything? Um, I think I'm struggling and managing the same way that everybody else is. Um, my quarantine experience, um, in part because of uh, the racial tension and because I study campaigns and elections, means that uh, my work increased, uh, you know, over the last year. And so that's certainly a challenge to try to balance it out. Um, staying at home sometimes makes it a little bit easier to take on all of those responsibilities, but it's certainly given me a lot of food for thought in terms of what my post-COVID life looks like and what balance actually looks like both during quarantine and after quarantine. And so I can't say that I've perfected it at all, mm. um, but you know, I've certainly learned a lot about myself and learned a lot about what my limits are and am envisioning what my post-COVID limits and balance are, is going to look like as I still work to try to make sure that I'm doing this right and making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm being a balanced person. I, I can't always say that I'm always the most balanced in terms yeah. of my work. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely appreciate that honesty. And I, I mean, I agree with you in a lot of ways that it really is something that we're all learning over time. And so I appreciate the way that you mentioned that. And also that it seems that you're also giving yourself grace to know that it's not going to be perfected. And there's things that you're learning as you go and things that you'll have to learn on the other side as well. And I think that's really healthy uh, for all of us to remember. Um, what about you, Jeff? How are you, how are you uh, managing and, and handling things in this moment? Well, it's uh, certainly, um, I can cry salty tears as to what has happened politically, and I know you'll be getting into that, um, to uh, America and certainly how uh, the virus has been mismanaged in um, the past um, year or so. Uh, seems like it's been forever, certainly, and uh, we have a lot of high hopes with the Biden administration to fix that, and it looks like it is moving forward on the right track. Uh, but uh, along with that and, and mourning the people who have died and gotten sick and uh, certainly opened our eyes to all of the uh, political changes, financial changes, um, sociological changes um, uh, in the world, uh, including the global warming and so on, uh, and, and just really watching that um, in a way where I go to bed uh, every night with my mouth open. I wake up every morning with my mouth open. I cannot believe what has happened to our world. At the same time, it's also been a very strange and beautiful existence mm. um, being in the house every single day. I'm virtually in exile and I've chosen uh, that uh, particular life. Um, I've taken joy and pleasure in it. Uh, seeing my family every day, seeing my children every day. As a matter of fact, I saw the kids uh, a couple of weeks ago in the kitchen, and I had to ask my wife, uh, who are those kids? She was like, those are your kids. I was like, wow, finally I get to recognize and spend time with them. And I know Dr. Gillespie perhaps goes through that too. Uh, but it certainly was um, uh, being home every day has uh, given me the time to pause and think about what life is about. Uh, and what it is that I need to do once we go back out into the world. Uh, but I, I have to say this, and, and I'll keep quiet uh, after this. Um, if I never had to leave this house or this property that I'm in, and you could see a little bit of it you know, from my window, if I never had to leave again, I think I would just stay here and 
work for the rest of my life. And I'm a guy who's a Manhattanite and all of that, but it certainly has changed things for me uh, in a very dramatic way as it has for everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, so many important components that you're bringing out as well. I um, mean, all the changes that are, are, are associated with everything that we're going through, both the ones that are not good and the ones that there, where there is some silver lining, there's some things that we're trying to to grow in in the meantime too. So definitely appreciate you you bringing those to light. And yes, there's definitely aspects of that we'll be looping back into um, as we as we move forward in this conversation. Um, so both of you have hinted at this already in terms of some of these really important topics. But I'm also curious, you know, what attracted you to this podcast in particular? I mean, obviously there's numerous podcasts out there. You're both very prolific. You're both in the media space. There's lots of ways you could be spending your time. Why take the time to, to jump on here and to jump into the conversation in this space in particular? Uh, Jeff, if you wanna jump in, that'd be great. Well, uh, I certainly uh, knowing the work that you've done, uh, Nias, for me, it, it's been just like ap absolutely amazing that you bring a real clarity uh, into the things that we do and why we do them. And certainly I couldn't think of a better podcast to be on. And I get a lot of offers like Dr. Gillespie, you know, to do these media hits and to do, you know, these podcasts. But I knew this is a place where we can have uh, not just an intellectual, but an emotional uh, discussion to try to figure out where we are in this very upside down world and how we make it right side up, perhaps. Mm, well said. I appreciate those kind words. And getting to right side up is definitely the goal. Uh, what about you, Andre? What, what pulled you in? Well, I mean, you asked, so of course <laughs> I was going uh, <laughs> uh, to help you out um, and to honor the fact that I've known you and your wife for almost 20 years at this point. Um, you know, I have to admit, when I first heard, you know, what the topic was, my first reaction was, I'm not qualified to talk about that because my research <laughs> isn't about mental health. Uh, but then, you know, through some additional conversation, I, you know, realized that what you wanted me to talk about was to talk about the, the context. Um, and so I can provide kind of the political context and then I can talk about mental health from a personal standpoint. So I will say that kind of, you know, just as a preface, you know, I'm not a mental health professional um, in the same way that Dr. Jeff is. So, uh, you know, you go to him for it, like your specific clinical advice. Um, and I, I would be there to affirm that the things that you're seeing may or may not be the way that they are. So, yeah, yeah, very well said. And we definitely appreciate you know, your willingness to jump in in that way. And I think that's part of the, uh, the beauty of it too, because as you hinted that, we don't always have these types of intersecting conversations, even though they definitely influence one another. So I'm hoping that's something we can really unpack in a conversation today and in this series in general, as we do that with some of the other topics as well. Um, but just to follow up on that, Andrea, if you could just give us a little bit of a taste for, from your lens of what you see as our, in a, in a way, our current political health as a society. What, what does that look like at the moment? Where are we sitting? You know, I, I wish I could be optimistic and I am optimistic because I do think that there is uh, the potential for reform and the potential for reconciliation in the offing. But if I had to look at the current state of America, I have to acknowledge there are problems and there are serious problems. They didn't change uh, before or after January 6th. They didn't change before or after January 20th. Um, and I think it's important for us to realize that America is just as sick and just as divided uh, now with the new administration as it was previously. Um, and it's going to be really important for us to spend the time. I know people want to move past things. And sometimes they want to do that for political reasons. But it's important for us to diagnose and address the problems that brought us to January 6th, that brought us to the last four years, because I think that that's more of a symptom than a cause of anything. 
um, in order to address those issues and move forward. So all of the problems in terms of partisan polarization, all the problems in terms of racial division, all of the problems in terms of people jockeying for position and putting power um, and sometimes party ahead of what's good for the country, all of the structural problems that were made laid, that were laid bare by what we've seen happen in um, the last few years are still there. Mm. Um, and we could ignore it and then kick the can down the road and have another eruption in a few years, or we could try to address these problems once and for all um, and put us in a better position so that we're more democratic, so that we're more just. Um, and what I see right now is a tension between people who I think have the will and the willingness to you know, have those hard conversations um, and people who don't want to have those hard conversations. And I think we need to recognize is, is that those groups are actually more evenly matched numerically um, than uh, some of us perhaps would want them to be. And so we're going to have to figure out a way to bring people along to have that, you know, uh, to have that moment where they're actually willing to say that. And so, you know, I wish we could say that we hit rock bottom on January 6th. I'm not sure that that is in fact the case. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. There's a lot there. And I, I appreciate you just really digging in and point out, you know, the reality of, of these things. I mean, these are more symptoms than the, than the core issue and the, the importance for us to really be able to dig in and address those. And we're definitely going to come back to talking about some of the things that we need to do to be able to effectively work through it and then move forward and not just move on. Um, but while you've brought up some of those points, I want to pivot to Jeff and just ask you, you know, in the midst of everything that Andre just brought up, how does that impact us as a society when we're thinking about our emotional wellness and our mental health? Like what's the what's the, the relationship between those? Well, I, I think um, uh, certainly with uh, what Andres uh, pointed out, the uh, political instability, uh, the she didn't use these words, but uh, the continued racism and white supremacy and how it has been divisive for our nation uh, from the very beginning right up until now, uh, I think more than anything else, this has been an affirmation for us that we as black and brown people and those of us who are uh, uh, diverse, liberal, uh, whites, and so on, that um, we're not crazy. We weren't making this up. We weren't uh, acting as victims. This is something that is structural and has been built into the foundation of the United States and you know many parts of the world. And so that affirmation, and I think for me, uh, as a black person, has uh, lent me a little bit more sanity because it is the truth. We are seeing what, what is part of uh, what is going on, part of the process here, and what it is that we need to continue uh, to address uh, and to try to fix. Um, but that being said, uh, I've never seen so much uh, traumatization and re-traumatization of black and brown people by watching the images on, um, you know, on television and other media sources uh, with the Capitol insurrection, the way the individuals were very uh, narcissistic, uh, acted out in uh, uh, very unstable ways, were very determined um, in the way that they were attacked. Uh, now that we're finding out, of course, uh, that there may have been some coordination with, you know, others uh, within certain places, uh, I think all of those things um, uh, not only remind us and are an affirmation, which in some ways, as I said, is healthy, that now we know what we're seeing is real, um, but it also is a constant trauma uh, that we're seeing the way that people act out, the way they're trying to um, uh, stop 
us from voting, uh, the continued oppression, all of those things, uh, I think, really contribute to our post-traumatic stress disorder, continue uh, to contribute to our post-traumatic slavery disorder, uh, but continue to keep us emotionally unstable. And why now we as mental health professionals have to address these issues in therapy and really look at positive mental attitude, spirituality, empowerment strategies, um, uh, strategies working within the political system uh, and every other system to address these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so important. So important on so many fronts. And you, you both brought out so many important topics as well. I mean, one, I think one thing that runs through both of your comments and something that a lot of us talk about is that these things aren't new. So in some ways, sometimes it feels to some like it's a new conversation, but it really isn't. I mean, these things have been embedded and ongoing. And in a sense, I do see some ways that that people are listening with more of an ear for empathy than they have in the past um, at times where people might have brushed it off or, or just assumed that those were things that were happening out there that weren't really happening right here where they were or weren't, didn't realize that these were things that were happening to people they knew. So even for me, as I've shared my story, that it's people feel shocked that someone that they work with, interact with is having these same experiences. In their mind, somehow they just put that out there as other. So I think there is an, a better understanding. I mean, there's still a lot and a long way to go in terms of that, but really reconciling the fact that these aren't fringe episodes or fringe things that are happening. This is, is baked in and it's happening across the board in so many different ways. Um, and then Jeff, you talked about just all the ramifications of that as well. Um, and so, you know, as a mental health professional, and you started to talk about this a little bit in some terms of some of the practice, but how do we deal with the state that we're at in really terms in terms of trying to really address it. And this ties into what Andrew was talking about in terms of the political piece as well. These aren't things that we can ignore, but we really have to dig in and say, we do need to address it. So where do we start? Well, let me say this to your prior point. What a difference a pandemic makes, Mm -hmm. right? Because it is the pandemic and everything that came along with it, uh, of course. uh, First, we didn't understand, but now you can connect the dots. We've never been through a pandemic uh, in our particular, uh, you know, since the last hundred years. So now we're seeing how everything connects. But it is the pandemic itself that really opened up the eyes and the hearts of many, uh, provided them the empathy to understand what social injustice uh, looks like and what it feels like and what people have been going through forever because they were feeling the pain too. This was a universal pain that actually changed the trajectory of the world. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, And so what we need to do, uh, I believe, and and I'm sure many people uh, agree, is addressing the mental health tsunami that came after as part of this COVID-19 Uh, pandemic that we are going through, can continue to uh, go through. And so that means now, um, more than ever, uh, not only addressing mental illness, but the importance of mental health as being part of our everyday lives. It's not just about, you know, as you know, I love to exercise uh, every day, but we also now have to exercise our minds. We have to exercise our spirituality. We have to be able to connect with other people and talk about the pain, our informal support groups, our formal support groups, our therapy. We're seeing more people, uh, including people of color, coming into therapy than ever before. As a matter of fact, when we look at the general population, uh, a, a poll showed that one in six Americans 
in 2020 actually accessed mental uh, health treatment. And that is incredible. In some ways, it's very sad that it had to happen that way. In some ways, it's very encouraging in that finally we're addressing the importance of being strong emotionally. So those are the things we have to keep pushing forward and smashing that stigma hmm. of talking about mental illness in the black and brown and other communities and continuing to address that every day actively. So well said and on, on so many levels. And yeah, I mean, as you mentioned that it's encouraging, disappointing and encouraging at the same time. But I think there's a lot that we can take from that to say, okay, well, look, we are starting to address it and we're not just moving on. And yes, we have made progress in, in terms of decreasing stigma, but you're right. We still have to really smash that, that ethos and get past that to really get to a place where we can have healing. Um, and in the same token, Andre, I was just curious to hear your thoughts because you've talked about this, um, or you've hinted at this already and talked about it elsewhere. Like, what do we need to do to move forward in terms of also equally importantly addressing some of these political tensions that are sitting and that we've seen, we've already seen when we ignore them, they just bubble up and more than bubble up, they explode. So what do we do to, I almost want to say, prevent that from continuing to happen as a cycle? Well, that's really complicated um, and complex um, because in the political arena, people have to contend with the fact that uh, some people who actually have helped to foment the division are in power and are likely to stay in power structurally because they're coming from districts or they're coming from states where people have a diametrically opposed view to the situation, where you have people who perhaps, you know, believe that Donald Trump really had the election stolen from him. Um, or people uh, who uh, actually see themselves pitted against uh, folks of the opposing political party um, and something that to them would be existential and equivalent to like a partisan death match. And so uh, we have to figure out as individuals and then we have to actually have to hold our leaders accountable for figuring out ways to lower the temperature. Um, and that's really difficult in this moment when not everybody is actually willing to work together. Um, so I actually was just teaching uh, this in my class. Um, we've seen increasing evidence of what we call negative partisanship. Um, so it's a concept that was coined by one of my colleagues and his graduate students at Emory. Um, and the idea of negative partisanship is not that I choose my political party, per se, because of what I believe in, but because I framed it in a way that says, well, I know I don't believe what those other folks are thinking. Um, and so while that can be clarifying, it also has the potential to other people. Mm -hmm. And th that has serious consequences. When we see people being othered, like, you know, taken to sort of, you know, its end, right? That's when genocide happens, right? Because, I mean, if you think about historically the ways that things have happened, like that's justified people feeling that it's okay to inflict violence against people um, and to try to eliminate people. And we've seen that in our rhetoric where you've seen social media posts where people think it's perfectly okay to talk about executing their political opponents. I'm like, we shouldn't be talking about that in the United States. That runs counter to our ideals, though we need to acknowledge historically um, how people have been completely unabashed in using violence when it was convenient for their ends. Um, and whether that is sort of, you know, actually holding, you know, people up, um, you know, um, whether that's enslavement, whether that is denying people their rights, like there's just a lot of violence in American history that goes unacknowledged. Um, that, that, you know, we're, we have to say, no, stop, that's unacceptable. Um, and I think we even have to say that this is unacceptable. We rebuke and sometimes we remove people from office even when we agree with them, mm -hmm. even when politically it's advantageous to keep these folks in office because they're gonna vote the way that you want. 
um, on certain types of issues. And that, because of negative partisanship, because of polarization, is the unwillingness that I've seen people do, right? I mean, it's how you can have somebody say, you know what, I think Donald Trump caused a riot. Um, but I'm not going to vote to like convict him mm. in an impeachment trial. And if he runs for president again, you know what, I'm going to support him, right? Because we got the same letter behind our name. And I think people who are Democrats also need to acknowledge that there are people who would use the same twisted logic uh, for a member of their own party if it met their end. Now, right now, I'm not trying to create a false equivalency, right? Because we saw a lot of that in the last couple of weeks. And I haven't seen Democrats actually like, you know, try to start a riot recently right now. But in theory, there could be some crazy person who decides that that is the way to go. And Democrats would then be on the hot seat and have the responsibility to stand up against that. Um, I think that we just need some courageous people, more of them, who are actually willing to stand up and speak truth to power wherever it is and actually be willing to take the risk, the short term political loss um, mm. of their careers. I haven't seen that happen. And so as voters, and we need to take that voting responsibility seriously and not just turn out in record breaking numbers because the country caught on fire. Um, in some cases, almost literally when we think about sort of, you know, uh, the environmental disasters mm -hmm. that have happened in the West, but that, you know, look different on the East Coast where, you know, where we see flooding. Um, but like the country was literally on fire because of COVID or because of wildfires or because of uh, demands for racial justice. And all of a sudden everybody realized what the stakes are. Yeah, no, those stakes are important when you're voting for dog catcher, when you're voting for city council, when you're voting for your state, legislat state legislatures. And sometimes some of these people um, come into sort of like their public service careers via some of these other routes. And if you want to stop that, and say that we don't stand for that type of uncivil behavior. Uh, we don't stand for people who want to be revisionist in their history and deny racism and deny marginalization, right? You got to stop them um, wherever, you know, whatever level they're running for office, even if they held office for a long period of time. And maybe if even in the past, they've done nice things for you. Hmm. Wow. There's a lot there. So many things we could, we could respond to. I mean, I think you've pulled out again so many important concepts, and I think this piece about whether it's reactionary versus whether we're in this for the long haul and really having some proactive measures. Um, but I'm also curious because you've painted a picture in terms of what needs to happen at a at a leadership level. I'm curious what you what do you feel like is the responsibility? And you mentioned this as well, but on the individual level versus the large scale leadership political level, and if there's any intersection between those two. I think that there's a lot of intersection. I think a lot of people think that polarization is this thing that people in Washington, D.C. do um, or that people may be doing in their respective state capitals. No, I mean, those leaders come from the masses um, and those leaders are getting their cues from the masses. And one of the things that's actually been really interesting is that, you know, we always talk about and, and, and perhaps in, in your high school civics class, you heard about the difference between trustee and delegate representation when we elect people. Um, you know, are they there to just kind of put their finger up in the wind and then just vote the way that they think the people in their constituency want them to vote? Or are they there to be able to make tough decisions, maybe technical decisions that are based on expertise and learning? And, and, and a lot of politicians kind of use some combination of both kind of depending on which issue is at hand. Um, in the last month, it's been funny to see uh, people go up to their leaders and hold them accountable, if you will, because they were like, we didn't send you there to think, we sent you there to do our bidding. And it was like, yeah, well, sometimes true leadership means uh, that you stand up and say, you know what, your, per your, your preference, your personal opinion is based in, in, in a lie. Mm. So, so it's my responsibility to show you that that's a lie and then help bring you to a different place. 
but that also suggests that there are people who can be easily led into a type of mob mentality mm. where they're not thinking. Um, and so we have to guard ourselves against sort of becoming part of the mob. So part of that is making sure that in terms of your own media consumption, um, that you are guarding your heart. So it's really nice to go into your echo chamber, whatever echo chamber that is, um, and only read and consume the stuff that already confirms what you think, right? Um, sometimes that stuff isn't true. Um, and there are some ways that you can think about it. So like the tools that I give to, you know, my students are, you know, if you're watching cable news, you know, prime time gets really opinionated. Certain time of day, like, you know, eight to 11, nine to 11 in particular, right? Those folks may be journalists, they may not be journalists. So you should know the background of your TV hosts and know sort of like when they're actually like spouting off of their opinion versus when they're delivering hard news. Uh, you should know when they have round tables, kind of like, you know, who are the journalists, who are the political hacks, who are there, who's there to be objective, uh, to provide outside information. Also, you should vet sources. So if one news outlet is reporting something and other credible establishment news outlets are not reporting it, you might be suspect they could be on the vanguard and other folks could catch up eventually. But that is a clue that if one news uh, source is picking it up, and other people aren't that there. This may not be true. So I would, uh, you know, not necessarily forward that on Facebook uh, if you can't verify the source of what's going on. And then, you know, there are other places that are trusted where these people have no idea what they're doing. Um, these people don't have any training. They don't have accountability. They don't have any editors. You shouldn't be listening to that as well. And I wouldn't trust any news source that doesn't have an ombudsperson and that doesn't have a history of retraction, right? Because all journalists make mistakes. And the difference between journalism and propaganda is that journalists will correct mistakes. Propagandists don't. And so you have to understand what it is that you're, that you're listening to. And it's okay sometimes to cut it off. Like, so you don't need the, even though news is on 24 hours a day, you don't have to watch it 24 hours a day. You should probably go sleep, some, spend time with your family and the real news will still be there when you get back. Yeah, that's really that's really good. You're, you're, you're touching on some of the mental health too. You're already putting in some of those practices. You made your disclaimer about not being a mental health expert. I think you got some good tools uh, that you're sharing with our listeners already. Uh, but I think, yeah, everything you mentioned is, is so spot on. Jeff, I was curious with everything that Andres mentioned, how you advise people, as she's been talking about, in their media consumption, both in terms of how much to take in, but then also in terms of what she's talking about, about discernment. And how, how do we react to some of those things? Because some of the things that are happening are real, and we've touched on that, that affects people. But how, how do you guide people in terms of those, those responses to everything that's happening in politics and in the media? Well, uh, Andra was spied on with her advice. Uh, and one of the things that we say as mental health experts is um, know when you've reached your saturation level uh, when it comes to consuming the news. Um, be able to get what it is that you want because breaking news is the same news that's being played over and over and over and over again. And so breaking news ain't what it used to be. So you can get that information quickly. And then once you get it, then go on to something else that relaxes you as you are absolutely processing that information. Um, and as well, as she has said, uh, again, the importance of getting it from different news sources 
uh, because uh, certainly you don't want your information to be homogeneous because then you're not getting differing opinions. It's not allowing you to think. It's not allowing you to process it uh, by hearing the different voices and giving you uh, much more information. But one of the most important things that I think that um, you should really consider is that we've lost many friendships. We've lost many family connections because of the partisan politics, what it is that we're hearing in the news, what it is you know, that we have come to believe. And so it's important that you stay connected to your friends, to your family, uh, to people that you may work with who not only have the same opinions, but especially who have differing opinions, because there you find common ground, you try to find common ground, you learn something new. Uh, it's not only the intellectual um, um, uh, processes that increase, but also your social IQ, uh, but more than anything else, you want to maintain those connections with other people because it goes beyond the news, it goes to your humanity and learning how to live in a world, how to live in a country where people have differing opinions, but you can respect their opinions, especially if they're not based on hate and racism and prejudice, but are based more than anything on having different perceptions. That's what's always made America when it has been great, great, but that's what makes us as human beings um, the social uh, kinds of people uh, that we are. It's important to maintain those connections, especially in times like these. Yeah, I think that's so important. And you've, you've both made so many great points. I mean, I think there's so much rich content that people can really dig into here and really think about aspects where, you know, we've all fallen short. I mean, we're human, especially in this time with COVID. I think one of the main things that we've had to reemphasize for ourselves, I know I've had to reemphasize for my students as well, is to give ourselves that time to know that things are more difficult than they usually are. And there are going to be a lot more missteps than we use, than we were typically accustomed to taking in the first place. But to, again, have that willingness to be able to forgive ourselves and forgive those around us. And I guess, I mean, I guess, I think that gets to your point, Jeff, as well. And to Andre's point about really being able to get and have community beyond the differences. Andre, I think you hit that point very early on as you were talking about just how the differences are so deep seated. And you've talked about some of the, the frameworks from how people are focusing on the othering more and more than they have in the past. Not that it wasn't there in the past in other ways, but how, how dangerous um, that can be in a lot of ways. So definitely appreciate both the points that you all are, are, are pulling out in this conversation. Um, as we wrap up, I did want to just talk briefly about some of the additional steps that we think about in communities of color as well and how we move on. So, or how we had tried to move on after having moved through. So there was an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, specifically from black staffers who were at the Capitol working on January 6th. And they talked a lot about their specific traumatization that happened in that moment. I mean, they assumed that of all places as black individuals in this country, that they would be safe in that environment and all the fears that they had fear for losing their lives in that situation. And then all the stress that they've know they, they've felt after the fact, and even just saying, okay, you know, sometimes um, if we haven't gone through it, the post-traumatic stress can feel like it's an intellectual thing that we're talking about. Once you go through a situation like that, then you realize, okay, this is real. Um, and so I'm curious from both of you, how as, as for, for black individuals, all the ramifications of that moment and how we process that moving forward, both from a political framework and also from our mental health uh, framework. 
So this might sound a little weird, um, but in some ways, um, I think that there were affirming moments in this. As, as tragic as this was, I think it is important to acknowledge uh, that for many folks, this wasn't a surprise. Like we knew that white supremacy has sort of, you know, um, violent goals and that they could manifest themselves. And I don't think anybody woke up per se on January 6th, other than the people who were planning um, that riot and expected that to happen. But on the other hand, uh, people who are armed with the knowledge that white supremacy is violent um, weren't shocked by what they saw, even though as citizens in the moment, you can be shocked and horrified by what it is that you're seeing. And so I use the term affirming to say that it affirms what people knew deep down in their core about racism, right? So that you're not shocked or surprised by what you saw. And it also counters those who wanted to say that America isn't racist or that America was past race, that we took care of all that in the 1960s, surely after Barack Obama, there is no such thing as racism um, in America anymore. Um, all Donald Trump was doing was mouthing off, right? Like, yeah, no, we knew that. That was made fair. Um, and there's a strange comfort in knowing that you aren't crazy, that your experience uh, is real, and that it is tied the experience of other people. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is sort of this idea of community. And I think that there are mental health applications for this. In political science, we always talk about group consciousness within the African-American community. We talk about a political psychological concept called linked fate, which is, makes it highly predictive of African-American political behavior in terms of uh, policy preferences, in terms of voting behavior, and other kinds of things. It's that thing that makes Black people look alike, even though there's a lot of heterogeneity in Black communities, right? But part of the idea of believing that what happens to other Black people affects you and recognizing that you're not just an individual, but that politically because of the social marker of race and the social stigma of race, that your identity is salient, um, and that it makes sense for people to join together to try to collectively improve their community and their group status within the community. That also creates opportunities for healing because you don't have to suffer this alone. Other people saw the exact same thing that you do, that you did. And if you talk about it, right, that there, that's a way to help work through some mm -hmm. of that trauma together because, you know, part of the trauma is isolation, is feeling that you're the only one and uh, you weren't. There were lots of people who saw that, and they weren't always all black, um, you know, who saw that. But in particular, with respect to the African-American community, yeah, uh, I would say probably the vast majority of the 44 million um, of us in the United States kind of saw that and understood what was going on. And there's a way for us to be able to work together um, and, and, and combat that. And I think, you know, there's some lessons like, uh, you know, you know post-traumatic trauma and stress have been around. It may not have been named as such in previous generations, but we have a name for it now and we can talk through it. Mm. Um, and sometimes I think that there are important lessons here for how we talk about bad things. Um, you know, and I, you know, and I will leave it to Jeff to talk about when it's appropriate to bring this up with children. But I think perhaps some of the shock, particularly for people who are younger, is, is that they thought America was past all of this mm. in the last six years. Seven to eight years have shown us that, um, yeah, we're really not past all of this. But I actually, you know, as, as, as troubling and as dissatisfied and as frustrated as I can be, that I can look back 
at what happened in the 50s and what was happening in the 19 teens and 20s and what was happening in the 1880s and 1890s sort of shows this common thread, right? Right. There's the frustration of why are we still kind of treading the same ground that we had before, but there's also a comfort in knowing other people saw this, named this, tried to combat it. Um, and that we have an opportunity to kind of push the ball forward farther than they were able to mm. because of the tools and the freedoms that we have at, at, at our disposal. And I think, you know, it, it's better to have intergenerational discussions about this so that people don't understand that, ooh, this is the first time we're experiencing this. Mm. And sometimes our elders have tools that they haven't always imparted to us mm. because they were trying not to traumatize us. And that mm. wasn't a healthy way for them to deal with their trauma. And it's not a healthy way to help us deal with our trauma today. So I see opportunities. And so that's why I'm calling it affirming, not that I think that what happened on January 6th was a good thing, because of course that was horrible. Wow, that's so good. I, I agree. I agree. And, and uh, uh, you know, specifically going to this question about Black journalists and what they've uh, been through, uh, we know that they've been traumatized and re-traumatized. Um, they are having some real issues um, dealing with the dichotomy of reporting the news uh, and telling the truth, but telling it in a way that doesn't get them in trouble with the parent organization where there may be people who are extremely conservative, who may own those news outlets or uh, getting people really angry um, the general public, uh, their readers, the people who watch them by talking about what's really in their hearts. So they have to keep it uh, extremely professional and just report it in a way that uh, reporting is usually done, not putting your emotions in it, um, especially if you're just giving straight news. Uh, so they're facing the wrath of some people in that way who are saying, we don't want to know about your black experience. They're facing the wrath of people who are saying, why aren't you telling us more about your black experience? Um, and then we know that traditionally uh, that um, uh, black journalists, um, black broadcasters and so on, uh, there's been systematic institutional uh, sorts of um, racism, uh, prejudice in the places that they work where they have been treated traditionally as second and third class citizens, not being given their due, um, uh, feeling like they are an outside group. I know this because I've done a lot of the work uh, mm -hmm. with these journalists. And so uh, traditionally there's been a PTSD as Andra uh, has talked about. They've experienced it uh, in all of these avenues, but especially with what's going on in the world right now around COVID and around, uh, you know, political oppression and, uh, you know, and, and uh, social injustice. But at the same time, we also know, and this is life in COVID world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we also know uh, that it's important for them to um, be able to hook up with affinity groups uh, so that they can talk about some of their issues uh, and as well be able to connect with one another uh, with regard to um, informal support groups within their networks and also getting that therapy too. Yeah, so well said by both of you. And yes, that's definitely COVID life as you've demonstrated for us very well. Did you um, see the mom at the, the, the uh, on the floor saying, come back? <laughs> In my mind, I envisioned that. <laughs> so many, so many important points. I mean, I think you've both just the, the, the affirmation and attention that's there. And Jeff, as you even mentioned with the journalists, and I think for all of us in a lot of different ways. And I think that's 
that's part of the challenge for us really moving forward is to be able to, to lean into that, to both of those aspects and not ignore either one of those. Andre, I love the point that you, you mentioned about the elders bringing in aspects that they can help us with through as well, whereas some of those things might not have been spoken about before for fear of re-traumatization. Um, but as we're all going through it already, I mean, the time is, is definitely appropriate. Um, there's so much more that we could have jumped into. I definitely appreciate both of you uh, being here. And for the listeners, this is obviously an ongoing conversation we'll be having from different angles on the Addy Hour moving forward. Um, but I'm deeply appreciative to both Dr. Jeff Gardier and Dr. Andre Gillespie for joining on this first episode, for really launching in and giving us a lot to think about. Um, these are conversations that, as you'll see, we'll have some takeaways, but there's things that we'll also be able to continue to think about throughout the week. So again, just deeply appreciative to both of you for being willing to jump in on this first uh, episode and for really setting the tone for how things will go moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was an honor and a pleasure to be on the Addy Hour and to spend the time uh, also with you, Andra. Uh, you are spot on in everything you say, and I can listen to you forever. But I'll be oh, wondering. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, that. I've I'll watched this for years, so this has been fun. Uh, thank you. But I'll I'll be listening to you on the Addy Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to both of you, and for our listeners, stay tuned for some great episodes coming up. Mm-hmm.